0: It is a pleasure being here. Lolita, we got to do this more often. I miss that music. <laughs> a long time ago, Lolita and I tried to hold worship services in Laurel, Mississippi, and I think she's the one that carried us. But it's great to renew our friendships again with the blasts and with the rats, but to also. Come and encourage your church at this particular time in your life. We are behind you. We're with you in prayer. Knox and I were talking just earlier about how much we miss our dads. Uh, that's why I wanted to say, let's, let's call it Father's Night with Luke. But uh, we're talking particularly about the one real father that we have in heaven. We're all trying to imitate him, I hope. Tonight I'm surprised we have this many men because I figured everybody would be down at Lowe's or Home Depot getting that Father's Day sale, but I'm proud to see you guys uh, needed some backup tonight. Before I read the text in Luke 15, I want to give a little background. First of all, I'm a I'm a product of village life, I grew up in the Congo, I was 15 months old when my parents went out as missionaries, and they put me in the care of a couple, a man who was a great hunter named Kabundi, and his wife was Majin, a very sweet, loving person, when another missionary child, a girl, I won't give you her name because you may run into her one day, but she used to bite the fire out of me every day and she would comfort me and uh, i'm sure i'm a scarred individual but well comforted but i took notes about life in the village and when i see my new testament when i see the lord jesus preaching or teaching i have a village context now that i wish i had put in force or put in practice Back when I first started in the ministry, it took me till 1992 to catch on how I had missed some things. But I want to give a background because the setup here in Luke 15, chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, the setup is some guys were crowding the front row. This is hard for us to imagine, but think of me as a village in Africa. Nobody wants to sit in the back in the village. They want to be up front because they want to hear everything that's going on. And they want to be able to look at the guy who's preaching and have commentary after it's over with. We're like that too. We just don't fight to get up to the front. But look who's crowding to get the word from Jesus. It's the tax collectors and sinners. Just elbowing Pharisees and scribes left and right. And they have a reaction. Verse 2 says, And the scribes and Pharisees murmured among themselves throughout their entire company, and they would not stop mumbling and complaining. Now think about that. And what's their complaint? This man receives sinners... And eats with him. And Jesus has a response in three parables. But I want to give you the background what's going on in Jesus at that very moment. Psalm 23. What does Psalm 23 teach us there? The Lord is my shepherd. But look how the shepherd is described there. If you get up to verse 3. He restores my soul. That means he brings me back. He puts me back on the right paths. Look at it, of righteousness. He brings me back. And then in verse five, he, the good shepherd, becomes the host, prepares the feast, and welcomes us to his table. And it's a generous table, anointing our heads with oil, our cup overflowing. And then the psalmist says, surely goodness and mercy, loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's part of the background. You get to Jeremiah 23. It's a scathing message to the shepherds. The shepherds who are supposed to be leading the flock of Israel. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. And he goes on to describe their ministry, which is not a ministry. It's a ministry of death. And then our elder Grant read Ezekiel 34 for us. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. The guys who should be in good favor they've got this awful word of condemnation lodged at their feet and why is god upset with them because they're lost sheep who have been taken advantage of by the leadership that's what's going on in our lord jesus heart When he answers the Pharisees, what he could have said was, You're wondering why I receive sinners and eat with them? What's the implication? You guys ought to be doing that. You see the force of how we read the parables now? Jesus answers the rebuke of the Pharisees and scribes. With three little parables. Now a parable is not an illustration. It's much more. It's like an invitation. Come into my house. If you live in the village. Come into my house. And sit with me in my house. And let's get to know one another. Specifically come into this one room. Where I'm sitting now. And I'm going to tell you something. First, you gotta get used to the smoke in the house. For a while, your vision's gonna be a little bit affected. And if you're gonna spend the night, it means you gotta move a chicken or a goat over to the other side of the hut to get a night's sleep. What we pray for are Middle East eyes so that we can see and enjoy and imbibe the rich texture, of Jesus' context. One sheep out of a hundred is lost. And Jesus' question is like, What will you do if one of your sheep is lost? Keep watching TV? Check the stock results? No. You're going to go out and look for that sheep and find them. Sheep is lost. The guy finds the sheep and puts him on his shoulders. Now, that's not a picture for Hallmark. When the sheep is found, it's usually in some crevice or has fallen into a pit. And sheep's legs become rubber when they can't use them. So the shepherd has to put 50 to 70 pounds of sheep on his shoulders to carry him back to the house. And he's rejoicing. Sheep lost. He's found, there's rejoicing, there's probably a huge party and restoration. A coin. Jesus uses a woman in one of his parables. It's scandalous in that context. Men don't want to hear about women back then in that culture. Jesus uses a woman who's lost one day's wage in a silver coin. And so she's checking out the house. Now, why does she have to light a lamp? Well, because the houses there in Capernaum, where headquarters were for Jesus, were basalt. Do you know what basalt is? And it's igneous, volcanic rock. It's black and fine-grained. And big sheets of it make walls, ceilings, and floors. There are no windows. They're little tiny slits about three inches wide or three inches deep that run along the ceiling at some places in the house that's about as big as a man's one-car garage. So no wonder she has to light the lamp, sweep the place clean. She finds it, lost coin, one out of ten. It was a sheep, one out of a hundred. Now it's one out of ten coins. She finds it rejoicing. There's a party. There had to be a huge party. And restoration now we come to the third one let's be reminded this is the word of God verse 11 and Jesus said there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father father give me the share of property that is coming to me and he divided his property between them He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. My, how they began to celebrate. You know, we refer to this part of the passage as the prodigal son story. A prodigal, as we understand it in the States, is someone who has left home, spent his monies that he had on reckless living, and then returns home. But there's another definition of prodigal, the word prodigal. It also means a person who spends money in a reckless and extravagant manner. When you look at the mercy and the love of the father for this son, you see extravagant, lavish love expressed from the father. So in a way you could say it's about the prodigal father as well as the prodigal son. But actually the story is about two lost sons. One's a lawbreaker, the younger son. And the other one is a law keeper, the older brother. Now it's fascinating to me that Jesus tells this story in that culture, and he actually says that a young son comes to his father and what is implied in that request of his is, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. So, I can't wait. Cut me loose with the third of all that inheritance, my share. And to the breathless amazement of those rabbis, those scribes and pharisees, the audience there, the nobleman gives the son his request. And so what happens is the son takes his inheritance, it had to be in land, and makes it into cash. He turns it into cash, gathers it up, and then he goes to the far country. Do you see a pattern in these stories, though? Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, found, as rejoicing and there's restoration. Now hold on. Whoa. Greatest word in Christian counseling i found. Whoa. Y'all can smile on Sunday night. It, it's okay. Repentance. Where is repentance in the picture here? I haven't seen the word yet about repentance. What do all of us Americans run to when we look at our story? Look at your text with me. It's verse 17. Everybody thinks, I shouldn't say everybody, a lot of folks think that verse 17 is the verse of repentance. But when he came to himself, that's the younger son in the far country, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. My friends, I used to think that verse 17 was where repentance shows up in the story. But if it were true, there would be a break in the three parables. Does a sheep repent? Does a coin repent? What happens? Come on, get the sequence down. They're lost and they're found. Do they find themselves? Come on, y'all. No, they don't find themselves. They have to have help. The shepherd finds the sheep, and the lady diligently sweeps the place clean with the lamp, and she finds the coin. You're getting the drift here? I'm getting a little excited because I really want you to see there's a loving Heavenly Father who is after the lost. And we're talking about the lost in the covenant family, the covenant, covenant community. We're talking about wayward sons and daughters out there. Y'all know them. Certainly you have friends, and you're praying for those sons and daughters to come home. Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees and scribes is these parables. You guys are sitting on it, and you're not out there reaching the lost. It's a word to the Presbyterian church in America, isn't it? It's a word to Hattiesburg first. It's a word to all of us. Where is repentance? It's not in verse 17. What does that verse 17 tell us? That younger son could think of only one thing. I'm hungry and i got to eat. So what does that verse mean? He came to himself. Well, it doesn't mean repentance. It would break up the unity of all three, if that was true. A little history. Fifth century. There was a guy named Pelagius from Britain. He was a monk that was probably overthinking things we get in trouble, we can overthink ourselves into trouble. And Pelagius came up with this outrageous idea that man doesn't need really any help to come to God. He can do it himself. It's kind of like my little daughter Elizabeth when she was three. I was trying to help her with tying her shoes and she went, I can do it myself with a Mississippi accent. But then Augustine of North Africa, got to get Africa in there, he challenged him and he argued, no, man can't. Man has to have a savior. God has to send a savior to rescue because man cannot save himself. In the Middle East, there are various versions of this text. 1200... Years ago, in Arabic, the translation got, he came to himself meant he got smart. He took an interest in himself. And the third one was he thought to himself. It's kind of like saying it occurred to him, the young son. Nobody in those translations saw the young son as repenting. So, you could read verse 17 as he returned to himself, neither to God, or in those chapters there in Jeremiah 23 or Ezekiel 34, returned to the land. And the young son sees the father merely as a means to an end. He's hungry. He knows he's going to face the kazazah. You know what a kazaza is? It is a ceremony when a covenant son or covenant daughter has left the family and squandered their their lives and their monies and given them to Gentiles. Remember now, this is Jewish context, right? To Gentiles. The shame of it all, if they came home, is publicly the ceremony started with a gourd about this big, this high, filled with burnt nuts and burnt corn and right in front of everybody someone would take a big stick and whack that earthenware vessel and all the contents would would fall on the floor in front of that boy or, or girl and they would say, you are cut off from the covenant community. You are no longer allowed here. No one has anything to do with you. Whoa. was a lot to think about for this young son. He's going to face a gauntlet of shame unless he can come up with some solution. Nothing is concerning to him about his father's broken heart or the relationship with that family. Luke 15 verse 18. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Guess what? When Pharaoh finally agrees to see Moses, he does the same thing. He says, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you, Moses. Everybody in the world knows Pharaoh was not repenting there. It was manipulation. You remember the story in Exodus? No, the young son is not repenting. He is manipulating. He's trying to save himself. He's hoping the speech that he had prepared will touch his father's heart. So that he can be hired and make some money, save it up, and pay off the debt. So the community will recognize him as Okay. There's no hint of remorse. There's no, I made a bad choice. I'm so ashamed. None of that stuff. I know I broke your fa- your heart, Dad, for me. None of that stuff shows up in here in this speech. And the question is, his hope might be, will it work? The Father knows he's going to fail from the very beginning. That's why the Father is looking day after day down that long road to the horizon to see his son coming. He knows he's coming back. The father's concern is to hurry up and get to his son before the crowd does, before the village does. Get to his son and show publicly there's a reconciliation there because he doesn't want his son to suffer the humility of that gauntlet brothers and sisters, it doesn't take a whole lot for us to imagine what the Father in heaven is thinking about us. What did he do? See, the Father breaks all protocol in the village. He gets up and he runs. Noblemen never run with their long robes. In the Middle East, the men don't run. And they certainly don't show affection like this guy did, who began to just kiss and hug and kiss and hug. Our, our version, our, our translation doesn't do it justice. It's an ongoing kissing and hugging. That's what the mamas did in the Middle East, and they still do. Never the men. This father throws away all protocol in his haste to run To catch his son before the village catches him. And he goes through all these excruciatingly humiliating steps in order to reconcile that boy before the mob gets to him. And the prodigal is thinking that a sum of money will heal a father's broken heart. That's just how far away he really is in his mind and his heart about being in a far-off country. Repentance is defined two ways. One, by the audience, the scribes and the Pharisees, they would describe it as the sinner must confess, he must make compensation, he must demonstrate sincerity. The purpose of the work of repentance to that audience is to restore the sinner to God's favor. What does Jesus say? This is, this, if you let it, it will stir your heart. Jesus' answer to the word define repentance, Jesus says, Just as the sheep and the coin and the son were lost and they were found. The sinner surrenders to grace. And the repentance work for him? (laughs) Just to accept being found. Brothers and sisters, let this work in your heart. Because the excruciating humility that's acted out there by the Father... is pointing to the excruciating humility that had to be taken by the Good Shepherd, our Lord Jesus, in our place. Because the Father sent him on a mission to save the lost. Characters like you. You. And me. Kissing and hugging. Hugging. Running to a son who's now become notorious in the village, he's I'm sure at the top of the list of gossip. Middle East mamas are famous for that kind of emotion and display of emotion. And then, we don't even get to that, but the humiliating work of the father to leave the banquet... In order to plead with the older brother to come in and join into the feast and the merriment. And the brother won't do it. I'd love to see the story end this way. And the older brother came in. They had an awkward moment. My kids love that office show because of awkward moments. I can't stand it. It just made me too nervous. But there's this awkward moment. And then the brothers say, I'm sorry. And the other brother says, yeah, I am too. And they hug and the curtain comes down. No, it doesn't end that way. And I think it doesn't end that way because the Church of the Lord Jesus has to answer that parable with, what are we going to do about the wayward sons and daughters out there? People come to me a lot of times and tell me about their wayward son or their wayward daughter and I used to agonize about, what do you say to them? And I said, work on your welcome. Work on your welcome. Get the party ready for the welcome. Because they're not supposed to come in on a certain protocol to please you. You know what happens? A wayward son, a wayward daughter gets away in, in, in a church in a far country. And the first thing that the family goes through is a, is a desperate desire to save the reputation of the family. Amazing, isn't it? And then there's anger and there's gossip, and then there's some prayer. It's kind of weird prayer because it's mostly condemnatory prayer, and everybody's ready to pile on. Well, that crazy guy, that crazy girl, oh <laughs> It's unpresbyterian. <laughs> the gospel says we're to be related and emulating. The good shepherd that's going after the lost. And our welcome is not how good the repentance is. Our welcome is, hey, did you hear about being lost and being found? The way Jesus finds people. I identify with this third parable so well, but I bet you do too. There was a time when for some years my parents didn't know whether i was dead or alive i was in a nightclub i'd written home that to my parents that don't worry about me i'm i'm running an entertainment club that's cool for a bar and nightclub and all that stuff one night i was giving my bartender a break and on the front bar, and I had customers on this side, customers on this side, and here was a wait stand, and there was a little girl who could not make up her mind how, what the drinks were, how many the drinks were that she was bringing in an order, and ordering. for a busy bartender, that is not what you want to hear. I was pretty irritated, and suddenly I felt eyes on me. I wouldn't worry about the cops or anything because we had paid them off. I looked up, and it was my dad. I got the bartender to come back to his place and I scooted out under the bar and went out to Dad and I said, Dad, let's go out in the parking lot. I didn't want him to see me in that place. We walked out to the parking lot and he said, Son, your mom and I are just kind of worried about you. <laughs> That's all he said. He asked me how I'm doing. and I told him I'm fine. I was lying. I had dark circles under my eyes I hadn't slept for days weeks I was living on vodka and grapefruit juice that was a mess he was just graciously letting me know that I was loved at home and as a year later I made such a mess of my life I wanted to kill myself and I tried I was in the hospital recovering from that and the nurses kept preaching at me and i kept saying if you say one more thing about god i'm going to kick you out of here and this sweet dear lady who was a nurse said baby you can't do nothing without my help why don't you just shut up you can't even go to the bathroom by yourself And i said Gre- ugly okay ma'am but that night i surrendered i just said i can't fight this lord but don't forgive me just don't don't just forgive me lord i've been a mess to you to my family would you please give me a new heart for this stuff i can't do it and somehow strangely enough the next morning i felt very weirdly different i realized first good night's sleep i'd had in five years That nurse that loved to preach to me, she came running in. She looked at my face and she went running out the door. Oh, my God, he's got the Holy Ghost. I said, shut up, woman. But it started a whole new life for me. Then I wondered about my relationship with my dad. Dad was an architect working on the Superdome. That was the project then for his firm and I made an appointment with his secretary and I said, don't tell him it's me. I just want to surprise him. He may not want to see me. I was on crutches and I went in there and dad jumped up from his desk. He said, son, what in the world? You didn't need an appointment with me. I said, oh, dad, we got to talk. Is there someplace quiet we can go? And he took me down to a conference room there in his office on Canal Street in New Orleans. I told him, I just said, Dad, I've made a mess of things, and I, I really want to ask your forgiveness. He said, Son, I forgive you. And we hugged and we cried. He was crying worse than I was. And I just felt real bad about that. I thought, Boy, you make a mess left and right, don't you? And I got out of his office and went back to the bus and took the bus back home. And I was walking up the sidewalk with crutches and hot. And it was July. And the phone was ringing in our house. I could hear it because mom had the air conditioner off and the screen door open. Well, the screen door was working. The, the other door was shut, that was open. And uh, she answered the phone and she said, Walter, it's for you, come on. I said, tell him I'll be right there. And I got into the house and I picked up the phone. I was out of breath and I went, hello. And it was dad's voice. And he said, son, welcome home. I tell you a story like this because I want you to see the only thing going for my folks during the whole time I was in a far country was God's covenant promise that he'd made long time ago when they baptized me. The promise of salvation is to you and your children. And their prayer was, Lord, we're just going to remind you. Our boys out there, would you bring them home? I tell you this story because there are a lot of Presbyterian kids out there, lost. Now, I'm not talking about they're not converted or anything like that. I'm just saying what the scripture tells us is their condition was they're lost. They need to be found. We need to learn how to be a praying church for the sons and daughters that are out there. On the strength of His Word, of His ability. Remember, lost, found, rejoicing, and restoration. Let's don't forget the sequence. Let's be a church takes to heart that sequence with all our hearts let's pray Heavenly Father we know that there are children out there that really need to be found they need to be told that they've got a home a home with you a home there with family that love them Gracious Father would you teach us as a church how to learn how to pray about the wonderful work of the Good Shepherd and to know for ourselves the marvelous certainty that we too were lost and were found because of the work of the Good Shepherd, his death on that cross in our place, and his resurrection from the dead for our sakes. And his ascension into heaven at your right hand as our intercessor, as our high priest for our sakes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.